You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 156 of a Life of Nerds podcast. I'm your host, David Ian Howe, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Cochran Johnnen. Carlton will not be joining us today. Dr. Carlton Shield Chief Dr. Gover is in the Dominican Republic, I think on a field school. Yeah. Doing like underwater archaeology, something that he doesn't have really any experience in, but one time. And he's teaching it now, which is really cool. That's how archaeology works. Yeah, he's staying at an all-inclusive resort, I guess for safety reasons. Looks awesome. Carlton sent us a picture of that meeting, an all, all-inclusive breakfast this morning in the Dominican Republic. And then he sent us a picture of a giant bottle of tequila the day before. And I got at least six to seven memes or real sentiment Instagram from Carlton that same night. So we know what Carlton was doing and then doing the next morning. So he is in the Dominican Republic. Sink, I think he's looking for the Nina or the Pinta, the Santa Maria or something. Are you going to say sinking ships? Searching is what I meant to say. But, okay. um, <laughs> yes. but yeah, Sinking underneath ships. the search. Yeah, he's doing that. Um, he's not a doctor yet. He's in the, in the process just to, as, a, mm. as a heads up. But yeah, so it's just me and David. Way to be we a actually, dick. <laughs> I mean, he would say the same thing. He wouldn't want, he wouldn't, he would, it's stolen valor, you know? He's a professor at a school, so I just, <laughs> I just assume doctor, you know? <laughs> I'd call him doctor. Yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, we're going to try something wild and just spitball, go from here, see what happens. Yeah. For some reason, I was almost going to say, let's take your questions off the live stream, but we didn't set that up. <laughs> So <laughs> from Morgan Robbins, we have, why did you skip last week's nap in, in Ohio or Indiana? Oh yeah. I was going to go to a private nap in, in, um, Indiana from a friend that was hosting one. I was really sick. Did uh, I got some allergies and it was a four hour drive away in my bus, which is, and my bus would equal out to a six hour drive there and back. Roughly ten thousand dollars worth of gas, right? Yeah, so I was just like, if I'm not feeling well, <laughs> I can't really like nap correctly anyway without just breaking rock because of my hands, and then going to go all the way out there literally just to drink while I'm sick and spend money on drinking and gas. And I was like, I'll just stay home. Just to clarify, that isn't like a a, a gathering where you all sleep. It's where you uh, flint nap, correct? We do all sleep together, not like in the same Wait, room. I like you're camping. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, no, no. In a healthy, like, modern, secure sexuality way. Like, like some guys bring their wives. Like, nice. I'm taking this whole deeper. But yeah, uh, some of them may be gay. I don't know. They haven't told me. Uh, I, I can't, you know, it's not that enough for me to know. I'm not. I've tried. I, yeah, we're not there. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. good, to, right. good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, what, so what, what does that consist of? Like, what do you guys do? Do you just hang out and flit nap or is there like... Yeah, so a napping is like... It's kind of cool because it's a very like ancient thing, I, I would imagine. You meet up with people who are also good at napping, which I mean, that was just kind of survival every day back in the past. But what I like about nappings is that like normally in an archaeological setting, I'm taught napping by a teacher, like a professor in front of class. And like you read about it in the book and you get into the weeds of like, this is a tertiary flank with approximately 75% corn tanks and, blah, 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 and like or 17% cortex. And then our primary flake has 75% cortex, I guess. But see, here you go. You get into the weeds. Flint napping is not that. Flint napping is taking a rock and directing the force to the rock to make it make sh- sharp rock, make it pretty. And like you can learn all you want about like Hertzian cones and like, fracturing and aurelia scars and stuff like that none of that means anything like i don't remember any of that from lithics unless i pull up my book the way to nap is like to go learn from people who do it who don't know those terms because like people a hundred thousand years ago didn't know what a fucking hertzian cone is like they obviously saw that that effect when they were hitting it but they didn't like put too much thought into it i don't think because these people don't and like they're good at teaching it so like if you hit it here like look it'll feel like this and you'll know based on the sound and Yada yada, because we come from like a theoretical perspective, whereas they have been practicing, and it's kind of more of an innate actually doing of the stuff, which is something I never really got good at. I could tell you about hertzian cones and all that kind of stuff, but I can I couldn't make a by face. Yeah, yeah, and I kind of like walk in this like two worlds right now because it's 
I'm a better flint napper than most most archaeologists. I think that just like generally like understand like stone tools. Like I know there's a lot of archaeologists who are exceptional flint nappers for sure. I'm not one of them. I'm I know what I'm doing, but I'm not like great. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not like an artist at it yet. I would put it that way. Whereas like these people are straight up artists at their craft and like learning from them. It's like, I'll never know. I'll never be a perfect flint napper, like as good as they are. I'll also never be like the best lithicist in the world, uh, but I know both sides of things, which gives mm-hmm. me a better understanding of like the past. I think a lot in the nappins, it's cool. Cause you're, you're getting, you're learning techniques from somebody. Cause when you learn from a class, like you just see a guy hit a copper bopper and hit a rock or a hammerstone and hit a rock is it. But like with these guys, it's like someone has a very different, like one guy uses indirect percussion. I learned from him. And I got really good at flint napping when I learned that because it was just too much of a hurdle for me the other way. Other guy only uses abo. It's like only uses rocks and antlers. Another guy's really good at copper. Another guy has a diamond tipped uh, pressure flaker, which makes beautiful flakes come off. It's just like you learn from these different people. And of course, they all grew up on, I wouldn't say they're rednecks in any regard. Like that's just kind of the word I would, I think most people would do, but they're like country guys that grew up on walking farm fields looking for arrowheads with their grandpa and like wondered how the quote Indians made the arrowheads they found. And that is very common in all the nappins I've been to and nappers I've met. They all didn't know it was a thing that you could do. They've picked up points and wondered how they made it and started hitting them. And they broke an arrowhead in half and were like, Oh, it breaks like this. Let me try that again. And then they started shaping it and then they got really into it and then learned it's flint napping as a thing, which I think is fascinating. That's that's super wild because that means that there's some like innate ability or innate understanding in our human biology and or cultural past that we have passed down to us that we can eventually figure it out. I guess our brains are smart enough to realize hitting two rocks together and breaking them at one point and ultimately like refining your technique is part of the human process. But if it does feel like there's something like innate in us. I don't know. Would you would you say that, or do you think it's like? Yeah, like just I'm go- fidgeting with one right now. Like I just I like touching it and looking at it and the bumps that go over it and yeah, it's like you can look at art and appreciate like the Mona Lisa. Like you can appreciate Van Gogh and be like, oh wow, that's an artist made that because you've been told that's a famous artist. But like oil painting is like or watercolor is a very specific type of art form, whereas mm-hmm. like. Flint napping, it's a tool, but like everyone needed to use it. But it now is like, it takes a lot of art and skill to make them look good and like make them right and make them thin and make them functional. And I think everyone appreciates, even if you don't like arrowheads or like you didn't collect them or you don't care too much for it. I always notice when people who don't flint nap look at flint nappers, they're fascinated by it because it's like, it's just something so foreign, but it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's some sort of artistic expression for all the stuff in the past. Like you, you can't assume that everything they're dealing is functional. And I think you and Carlton kind of talked a, a little bit about this and the style versus function debate where I think Carlton was eating food. So we apologize for that. <laughs> it was all thing. Uh, but I, there is an artistic element to, I think, flint napping and uh, projectile points. You don't, you don't go through these kind of super intense expressions and variations on stuff just for for function i don't believe i don't know if you do you feel differently about that like the variations of like point styles yeah like it's not all functional point style there's some artistic expression that occurs when creating a point yeah i i've also kind of like i didn't get to touch on this in the, the style by function debate too but like there's there's style and there's function so like this one i'm holding right here is serrated on one side and the other side it's not it's just because I didn't finish it. So like somebody might pick that up later and be like, oh, look at this style. And like it's serrated on one side and sharp on the other, kind of like a Bowie knife is, or not a Bowie knife, those like survival knives have a solid blade on their side. Yeah. But some people like physics or not or hunting or not might think like, oh, this will be more effective. And they just, it's a psychosomatic thing. Like I noticed I'm playing Jedi Survivor right now and like, I'm like, oh. Well, like if I wear these commando pants, like then I'm definitely like, you know, I'm more powerful, but like, it's just, just a skin on the pants. Like, it's like <laughs> I climbed and like hiked and fought like 18 droids to get this little fucking chest upgrade uh, or armor upgrade. And like, it doesn't do anything. It's just the, the, the effort you put into it. And I think a lot of flint napping is that too. Cause a lot of people are just like, 
this looks cool. And like, therefore it, it works better. You know, I, I don't know what the word is for that, but we do that in everything else. Like you got your lucky sports Jersey or like, I know like oh, my neighbors growing up when the superstition, right? Yeah. Superstition. Yeah. Like he would wear the same boxers at a, at a home Yankee game, like the same color. Like he had to wear blue or something. Like that. It was the opposite of whatever the Yankees home colors are. Yankees home colors are white away is gray. Yeah. So he had to wear, Sorry, it was these gray ones he had to wear whenever they had a home game. Yeah, it was it was weird, <laughs> but like he, the Yankees would win if he did that. Yeah. So there is like, so you think that part of it is superstition and this looks cool and like human ingenuity too. I mean, we're just trying out different things. Yeah, I mean, what like happens. the base really is the most functional part, like because how it attaches to the the shaft or the dart or whatever or the foreshaft. Mm-hmm or the antler that you're using it for a knife, but the rest of it just has to be sharp, like pretty much. I mean, the longer it is, the deeper it penetrates, I guess, but that's not always the case too, because you've got very tiny ones. Yeah. And that's kind of what my thesis was about, but. Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always thought it was interesting, um, doing part of your thesis and the kind of how you attach the arrowhead to the foreshaft and the dart. It's kind of a, super intensive process you know it's there's a lot of getting glue getting ligature or whatever you guys are using tied up is that a word that's not a word what <laughs> isn't lig- ligature ligature isn't that like when you ligaments i thought and stuff? you were trying to say literature <laughs> and i was like yeah. what are you talking about you're taking Lig- shakespeare and you know you no, cut up I, little pieces <laughs> i'm not sure but that that's the word does sound familiar okay ligature ligature yeah it's whatever uh ligaments etc to tie it up it's like a really intensive process yeah it it does it does an excellent job i think most of your points didn't actually break completely off from the foreshaft right no no not all of them just the smallest ones broke pretty good and the the biggest ones kind of preserved preserved all right so the rock is like the the weak point or at least because it's taking the brunt of the impact that or i think the biggest ones just didn't penetrate well like that just the tips kind of stuck there yeah, that's probably the case. Yeah, well, if, if you're interested in penetration studies, make sure and read. Isn't Pettigrew coming out with something soon, hopefully? Yes, I think his comes out soon. Yeah. I, I, I like Nappins because you, you learn a lot from people. You learn it like what their version of like, you know, it's all that they understand Hertzian and Cones and they understand like, like the, they know the history of it. Like I learned from this guy who learned from Francois Bordeaux or something like that. And like they they can tell that stuff and they watch all the YouTube videos of like nappers. And we all know like, Oh, you've seen paleo man, Jim, like the guy on YouTube and like, Oh, he hasn't posted in like eight years. Like what's up? And like, Oh no, I heard his wife died. And it's like, like little things like that, but we don't know that. We're just making that up. <laughs> or like, it was just, it's just a rumor. It's like one of those things, but like everyone's like, Oh, I learned under just name. Uh, like my friend, Jake Webster learned from Donald this guy. Dust. Donald Dust. No, I mean, I would say Donnie's my, my main teacher, but Ed Mosier. And like he would say Ed Mosier over and over again as if I should know this like archaeological name. That's like, Ed Mosier. And he's just some dude that works in Indiana that also just flint naps because he loved it as a kid. And like I've never, doesn't have any archaeological workout or anything, just flint napper. And it's just one of those things where it's like, it's kind of like a piano teacher or a guitar teacher. Like, oh, I worked under this guy. And it's like, okay, well, I, don't, I don't know who that is, but he's probably fucking great. <laughs> like pedigree kind of stuff. Yeah. And like the dude can bust out a Danish dagger in like two hours. It's pretty crazy. And a, a Danish dagger, if you guys are listening, look that up. It's probably, if you can make that, you're a flint napper. Like, you know what you're doing. Uh, they're very hard to make. And it's a bronze age or copper age. Let's say copper or bronze age. Danish like knife that was made to look like a regular just like knife at the time but a Danish dagger they made stone knives to replicate that and they're like it's just prowess there's no real function to it yeah they can stab things but like there's no need to make a knife out of stone that good when you could just make it out of copper ore holy shit man yeah and I watched the guy bust one out with a giant moose billet in like two hours (laughs) I mean the flaking on that stuff is just gorgeous and then like the the variation on the and like, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, and like the variation in like the thickness that you have from the handle to like the actual point itself is wild. And like he prints out a paper cutout of what that should look like, puts it over the rock, 
and occasionally like puts it back over the rock to see like where he's at with it. And then he makes it perfectly. I'm like, damn. And he told me like, he picks up a rock. This is Ed Mosier. He picks up a rock and he knows like what he's making out of that. Like that's a Clovis point. That's an archaic fluted or an archaic notched. That's a turkey tail. He just knows like he sees it in there and he'll make it there. I don't do that. I just like, I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll shape it into something. Yeah. That's what he's like. Yeah, he's like, it calls to me, and I'll do it. I'm like, damn, dude. Like, it's shit like that you don't learn in archaeology class. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, you get, what, one one day of where, That's, you know, that, Alex yeah. Alex Cray will teach you that, or Bob Kelly will teach you that. It was like one one simple day, and you kind of hit some rocks together for like an hour. And then we're supposed to understand our archaeological record based on that. And then I'll post about, like, how to identify sites based on flakes and stuff like that. And I'll get archaeologists that message me like, well, that's not like a tertiary flake is banner, banner, banner. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. A tertiary flake is the smaller flake with less cortex on it that falls off when you're in later stage reduction. Then, you know, early stage reduction and late stage reduction, just put it on a spectrum. There's no need to make three specific little things and get into the weeds and be like fucking Damien. I'd be like, oh, well, this one's like that. And I'm like, no, you don't need to do that. Like, just... I think but, I think Damien's lost faith faith in the debitage analysis though. Good, I think, he should. <laughs> I think we've all lost faith. On that note, we're going to end this segment and we'll be right back. Welcome back to episode one fifty six of Life Nerds Podcast. We are your hosts Connor John and David Howe, where we are going to not only talk about prehistoric archaeology again, but get further into the the weeds of it. I'm just kidding. This is interesting for anybody. But when I worked for, I'll name some environmental firms out out east. I'll just say I worked CRM for a bit. Or for a bit in different places. One company I worked for had such a specific, like, how reduced was the biface? What kind of biface? What was the uh, the formation? What was the, like, can you identify, is it chalcedony? Is it chert? Is it obsidian? Is it flint? And, like, then on top of that, it was, like, what stage reduction is it? How heavily retouched? And then also for flakes, it was, like, how many flakes? How many are tertiary? How many are secondary? How much retouched? Why? Why do you need all that information for like six flakes that are in thing. I get better to have it than don't have it, especially for dropping the flake back off in the, the dirt and not bringing it with you. But like, just say it was late stage reduction. That's like it. There's not, it, it doesn't look like somebody was sitting here flint napping. It looks like somebody like knocked off a few flakes to sharpen it. That's what I'll say. Yeah. And, and, and what I've, I, what I've learned from other people in the, in the industry and even like in academia is that no one really codes the things the same. No one really, uh-uh we had a thesis at here at the university of Wyoming, Casey Dukeman, who, you know, did this study where he sent the same debitage, same whole lithic collection to a bunch of different analysts and found out that they had vastly different interpretations based on their methods, based on their understanding. I didn't and these know are that expert. Was a thing. That's cool. Yeah. The Casey Dukeman, check it out. We'll probably link it if we can in the, the show notes, but they had vastly different understandings of this. And these are supposed to be people who are experts in the field and, should generally agree if our scientific method is correct, if we're doing things in a way that is replicable and good. So it is this kind of thing. And I think CRM companies are forced to make these deductions on the fly. Uh And they have to come up with like a final guess on what is happening at the site. They can't just leave it like, Oh, I don't know what's going on here. There's some, flakes there's some cores you know i don't know if it's specifically late stage reduction early reduction i can't really say unless we do like a larger sample there but they're forced to like kind of make these evaluations because we have to you know evaluate it for the national register of historic places so you have to have to have the final say right then right there of how and what is going on at this site and it's kind of and i know a bunch of other crm people would agree with me that like it's kind of damaging to how we understand the past and it's not really accurate or a good way to analyze stuff in the field. I don't know. I think you probably had the same experience working for those environmental companies, right? Yeah. It's just like, I was flabbergasted when I went out there, like being a fucking why not to say like I'm a Wyoming archeologist, but I was trained there in a processual nature where you do quantify things like a lot and qualify things like that a lot. And like, I was shocked at like how much they want you to quantify and like qualify all these little things. Like, it's like, damn, like that's just not either. And like you said, it, it, it's too into the weeds and everybody codes it differently. So like what somebody calls tertiary is not going to be tertiary. It's going to be secondary to somebody else. And like, 
it honestly just becomes like a circle jerk of like what you believe and like what people think should be the right way. And it's just dumb to me. Like, albeit in Wyoming and Colorado and Utah and like anywhere out West where there's a lot more surface finds like that. Sure. It is a little better to be pretty thorough because that's most of the archaeology out there. Yeah. Uh, and you like, can sample, sample more and you have, you're not just getting like a couple flakes from a shovel test out East or something Yeah, like that. And out East too, when you're doing like historic archaeology, it's like, it's like, I've seen it too. It's like, what kind of brick it's red brick. What kind of brick is it? Waddle daub? Is it like clay fired brick? Is it hard fired brick? What era? What year? Like, I don't know that shit, especially if I'm like, if you're, if you went to school for historic archaeology and you got a job being historical, doing historical archaeology CRM, you're going to know that stuff a lot more. You're going to know a lot more about like Eastern ceramics and like Colin aware and Spanish ceramics and English ceramics. But like, I don't coming from out there, but I'm also put into that same job sometimes. And like, I can tell you it's historic ceramic. It's like, it's China or it's porcelain. Like it's, I can tell you that. Um, yeah. You're forced to as like a tech to, to kind of be a, a master of none decent at all or whatever. I don't know. You yeah. know, it's just, and I think it comes to the role uh, that you're play, you're forced to play as a CRM archeologist, uh, project director, a PI is you you have to make management decisions on the fly as you're going. You're like, we have to protect this site. This is going to be impacted here. So I have to argue this and it has to be protected. And I have to have very specific arguments about why this happens. I have to put two shovel tests in. I have to figure out that there's deposits, et cetera. You're kind of doing this within maybe like 20, 30 minutes of what you're given at a site. Mm-hmm. And then you're you're forced to like, oh, this is exactly what's going on here. I, I understand it perfectly. When we really don't. We're just sampling and we have like a little understanding of what's going on there. Like if yeah. we really want to get into it and understand what's going on at sites, we have to do data recovery or more intensive augering. We're not given those luxuries as CRM professionals. You're kind of forced by clients, forced by even your own company at time to get things done and to make these quick decisions. You know, I think people are good at it. And I think all CMR, a lot of CRM archaeologists are really trying hard to mm-hmm. protect resources and do good science. But they're really only given like these small opportunities and forced to do these these non not super scientific kind of analyses on the fly. Right. And in that regard, too, like you're to say like, oh, this is a place to see an alluvial drainage with subangular blockage sediment that's a 10 OIR4 on the Munsell scale that also is, let's say, riddled with tertiary flakes of a chalcedony reddish nature that are also intermixed with silver coins from a Spanish fort that was nearby in the late 1560s. And I'm just naming things off here that are like made with let's say El Castillo style brick brick molding, which comes from Cordova and like just shit like that. You have to say that kind of stuff because when you write the report trying to tell Walmart not to bulldoze this land down, you want to make it sound good as to why you want to keep it. I get it. But also it's a fucking brick wall built by colonists. Wouldn't you know anything more about that? No. <laughs> like that's like, do we keep it or not? I'm assuming you're going to keep it because it's made by fucking white people. <laughs> but we'll like not, you know, I don't know how it works out east. Yeah. Well, in prehistoric stuff, like there's, there's, and it's really interesting because you can make arguments for eligibility and protection kind of in four different things. They have the four different, what are they called? I don't remember the uh, A, B, C, and D. Yeah. They're eligibility requirements. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can argue. Uh, I don't know. Have this on the top of my head. It's associated with the, like an important person. It's um, actually it's, taped to the inside of my field bag, so I can say it. To people. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> so I think A is a oh, person. It's interpretation to people too. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a is p- person, place, thing. It's important in in, in history. B is isn't it the works of a craftsman or like a very unique style style rings a bell yes or like technique yeah yeah it's like a good representative of this of the style and c is a, i think c is associated with historic events i mean they might not be in this order but it's important people important events and important like stylistic and mm-hmm. stuff like a good representation of that culture yeah yeah exactly and then d is what what most prehistoric stuff is is potential for research mm-hmm. or potential to give information about the past and you're not going to very often h- 
argue prehistoric sites for A, B, or C. Uh-uh. They just never, they never happen, and they always have to fall under D. So right. it's very subjective. It's really interesting. Yeah, very subjective, and I think it's well, you could argue very easily that it's biased towards historic stuff and giving them more options to to do that. For sure, and like that, that was a pretty apparent thing with the uh, with Trump's wall, which. Apparently most of it's been built under the current administration, which is funny to me, but <laughs> just all stupid. The it was rerouted, like the the working of it a lot, like the route around historic European cemeteries, but it was blasted through native land or like native potential archaeological sites. But is it a result of the institutions being colonists and racist saying, fuck it, it's just a Native American site, go through it? Or is it kind of just like to people who know nothing about archaeology, that looks like a pile of dirt with some rocks in it. That looks like a building. Like, we need to go around it. And, like, it's hard to... For me and you, we're sitting here screaming when we see that shit happening because it's like there is potential for research there, like, especially Absolutely. right there at the border. But, like, you're along the river. But <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell people sometimes. Yeah. It's hard to make that argument when you can't see it as much, like you're saying, on the landscape like you can... European stuff like it's just it's always going to be fundamentally difficult to unless you find this beautiful horizon or if you run into human remains mm-hmm. like you you really have you're fighting an uphill battle to protect anything that is pre-contact what, whatever the term is these days I'm I'm probably using the wrong term but whatever pre-contact prehistoric indigenous you know whatever it is it's it's really hard to argue and and you have land managers with different agencies who will fight against you when you try to call stuff eligible and deserving of protection. Mm-hmm. So you as a CM archaeologist are like put placed in between a BLM or a, like a federal archaeologist and a proponent who wants to build stuff there. And you have to try to argue to both of them that you should protect this site. So you're fighting in between them and then your proponent wants you to get stuff done and at a certain time frame, and the BLM person also yeah. kind of wants to push it through, or the U.S. Forest Service, whoever it is, wants to push it through. So you're stuck in this like middle ground. You're trying to protect resources, but you're also being pressured by both federal archaeologists and your proponent to get stuff done. Yeah. And when I was monitoring this summer, fall, I should say, in Colorado... The bulldozer crew that I was with, like, you're not, you're not supposed to stand with them all day and talk to them, but you're doing nothing for eight hours. So you end up talking. And like, I pretended to be this like conservative Christian Trump guy for three weeks talking to this guy. And it was really fun. Like I had my whole (laughs) life made up and like him and I were best friends. His opinions on things were wild. (laughs) But like, like, he ended up opening up to me and he was like, he started crying at one point about his like girlfriend that got hurt in a car accident because of his DUI and stuff. And I was like, this guy has never opened up to somebody in his life. Like I feel bad, but like I was there for him. Just, I wasn't, it wasn't David. It was Chris. <laughs> but like my name was David on my tag. But like I, you know, come up with different lives for these people, but um, cause I don't want them to know who I am anyway. His car, he can't drive cause he clearly had a DUI. <laughs> his license was taken away. This is your tax money here too. There's the dozer guy who runs the bulldozer and that flattens the pad, the flatlands so that can build a, like a power tower there, like a big like tower. Transmission tower. Transmission yeah. line, yeah. A, a giant like electric pole, put it that way. And you got to flatten the land. I have to watch him to make sure no sights come up or no stains or features or bones. He has a guy who's out there who literally has to stand in front of the dozer and wave. And tell the dozer keep coming, keep coming. Even though the dozer can see on the computer in the front of his on the front of his little thing where he he is, he's paid for this. He's paid I think fifteen an hour. Not great, but he's paid a lot for it. To, to this is because he's constricted. Yeah, because he's constricted to the pad. Like there's very strict laws of where they can disturb, and that's right. that's part of it. Is that that guy has to like say, hey, you're at the edge of the what we've determined is the pad. You got to back up, and you have to or you know, yeah. direct them as such. That That's his job. Yeah. And then there's a guy who goes out there with a, a track hoe and Samson. I'm getting to the weeds of this, but the point being he's out there to do that job that the, the spotter is there to do his job. And I'm out there to look for stuff. And occasionally I have a partner or those paleontologists with me too. He couldn't drive. And the guy, the bulldozer guy had got him a job and said, come on up to Colorado. I'll get you a job this summer. Get your life straight. And he was like, cool. There's a family friend. 
and like he would yell at them and lay them into every day. It was kind of funny. But anyway, they seemed to have a history. And at the end of the day, like I would often, I had the truck cause I have to have my equipment in there to like monitor stuff. And like, I need to have my food and my water and stuff. And it, so at the end of the day, I would drive them back to their truck, which was like maybe a half hour drive from site back to the, the entrance to the BLM property. And then another hour drive back to town. And like, you're not supposed to necessarily do that, but there's nothing that says you can't, I don't think, um, at least on this project and I was just helping them cause I'm not going to make them walk the whole way. And yep. At the end of the day, like we want to go home. We're doing the same job. We want to make sure this pad gets built and we want to go on to the next one. But I'm out there literally all day as an antagonist to them being like, hey, don't don't go there. Like, stop. I need to look. And like that annoys me because I know they just want to do their job. But at the same time, your tax money and my tax money goes to me to do this and to make yeah. sure I'm preserving indigenous heritage and not bulldozing through something. But at a certain point, it becomes like you're not preserving indigenous heritage. You're, you're impeding progress or you're like, you know, yeah, like you're, you're just in the way. <laughs> it's kind of like how I feel most of the time. And when I feel like that, I'm like, no, I'm doing this for indigenous people, but then also, no, I'm doing this because it's the law, which is for indigenous people. And then like, but it's also for environmental reasons. So they don't get sued and things like that. It's, it's a whole thing. And I, I kind of lost track of what I'm trying to say, but if I were to say, Hey, there's stuff here. Don't dig. I know how much work and you know, too, from the mapping and all the paperwork side of it, how much work has to happen, how much work has to halt millions of dollars in case I find them. And I did. I found a few burials. There were, I think, Oregon Trail era, like pioneer burials. Still, I had to have them move around and like the whole road had to be moved and like the whole road's already mapped in. It's flagged out. It's been looked at by everybody and like like, I don't know how they missed it, but like, I was like, they're right here. So like, I have to then like all these people are like another fucking month out here. Cause we got to move everything, reroute everything. But that's the, that's the law. That's my job. And that's like what we're supposed to do. Cause it's not our land to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think um, if to put it in perspective, like, I don't think that million dollars or whatever it costs them is a drop in a drop in the bucket for these huge companies. No, not at all. So, and we're, and we're not, we're not really impeding progress and I've talked with other people and you know, we, we have to make these stops. It's part of the law and you can even get in trouble. Like an EI, which is an environmental inspector can come dock you for not doing your job there. So they're the real bad guys. They're the ones who are telling everybody construction people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're so like, I don't know if you get paid enough money to be an EI. And if you are an EI, I'm sorry. (laughs) Cause it's, it seems like it was (laughs) Devin was my EI. (laughs) Devin Pettigrew, we're sorry. We're so sorry. But it's, a, you know, I think I think if we put it into perspective that we are just kind of a small drop in the bucket of this money, money cow that is <laughs> these large corporations, we don't really impede that much. But it is a perilous position, like you're saying, to put yourself in. You feel like you're in the way. You feel like you're stopping construction when you're really just trying to protect what is in the past and follow the laws that are are governed yeah and sometimes i'm out there for eight hours and it's hot and i had sometimes you can't bring the trucks or to hike all the way out to the site with steel toe boots on not hiking boots i have to wear steel toe i guess there's maybe steel toe hiking boots but anyway it's it's hot i'm out there and like i don't want to have to now dig a whole site while i'm out there and like a lot of it frustrates me in that sense too is it's it's so fast like you have to just constantly be watching and if you miss it and if you find something, I have to dig that out and inspect it while he's still bulldozing the other side of the thing. And there's just one of me. And like, yeah, it's just, it's so disheartening and frustrating. It pays well, luckily, but like, I just, I understand why no one wants to do it and why they have to pay a lot of money to monitors because it's, it's a seriously like thankless job. <laughs> yeah. And on that thankless note, we'll end the segment and we'll be right back. Welcome, 156, David, Connor, we're doing things. I think we ended up on like a similar tirade on a previous episode, but I don't think it has a, it came from a different angle. I don't know. Either way, I do want to say, I do want to clarify that we, you know, we do, we might be criticizing methods. We might be talking about how there's some issues with archaeology and CRM, um, but we do believe in it. I, I do believe in it. I do think that's something that we need to do, but that doesn't mean we can't criticize it and can't want to make it better i think yeah 
So I'm going to put that disclaimer in, but I'm also going to tell you how much it sucks mapping these, <laughs> these, these features that you find. That's like, you're like, I, I, I want to preface this before you, you go into it, but like, you, I don't think we talk about your job enough. Like you mapping and maps are the most like critical part of archaeology. And I don't think we really ever talk about it. So like, just go off King. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's not that interesting because it's a computer program. It is. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it is very what, important. Would you th- what do you think Vasco Jigama is saying right now in his grave <laughs> and saying maps aren't important? <laughs> maps aren't important. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that it's like the, the single most important piece of data that we get out of archaeology, right? If you don't know where the site is, yeah. you, you could describe millions of different things. You wouldn't know where it is. It's the, the location in space is huge. And that's something that we, are constantly dealing with it. My job, and I did I, I did a little baby rant about this on our rants and raves, but collecting accurate spatial location is probably the most important thing you can do in archaeology site. I will argue that. I will die on that that hill. I know Sam Levin, who's also was my predecessor here, will also die on that hill. Like that is the single most important thing you can do when you're recording stuff is to take accurate spatial information and uh-huh. do it well. And consistently, I'd imagine. Consistently and using data collection standards and methods that are consistent and replicable and you can use them every single time. So a lot of my job at Alpine Archaeology, shout out those, I miss you all. A lot of my job was creating those data standards and creating programs within the GPS and other and GPSs and tablets to certify that we are getting consistent data collection, consistent options for things, features, recording all features the same, recording all sites the same. We're getting as much information about each site from the GPS units themselves. So that was a big part of my job. And it's it's not the sexiest part of archaeology. It's It fascinates my brain because I think it's important and I will absolutely die on the hill. But it just but it also, dude, like when you're giving a site report to the BLM or to the forest service or somebody that like needs the report, that person reading it might have no idea about lithics, but like when they see the site and the extent of the site and can see the, the legend on the map and like, this is all the concentrations and here's the burials and stuff like that's important. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if you, and if you do, there's so many, so many ways you can mess up GPS data and get incorrect stuff that it's, it's a little harrowing. So you really have to do a good job of, uh, managing and creating standards and methodologies to record stuff. Because, I mean, you could take a point and, in the field and then, uh, you know, convert it into something, into a coordinate system that doesn't match what you took it in, and then it ends up like a section away. And then you're giving the wrong information to the BLM. So there's a lot of stuff that you can potentially mess up. I do. I see it on a, a regular basis. Like, you have to record things in the same coordinate system all the way through. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Do you do I elaborate on that? I mean, please elaborate, but what I mean, just the gist of what I'm getting is like consistency. <laughs> like it's gotta look good. Yeah, yeah. So if you record coordinate systems are a way of just like marking our place in the world. You can do it lat long, which is a, a worldwide coordinate system. What we use in the US is the UTM, or at least in archaeology, we use the UTM, which is Universe Transverse Mercator which is a, a series of systems that allows you basically whenever you're in a certain area to be roughly facing north when you're going north in numbers. So it's like adjusting for every little location on the earth. So Wyoming occurs in two different zones, two different types of coordinates or two different uh, zones, which are different locations to kind of adjust you north. So they, they're in zone 12 and zone 13. But if you put something, if you record something in zone twelve and then record it as thirteen, you're you're like a, a thousand meters away or something ridiculous. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. So it's important. So ch- keep your coordinate systems consistent, especially in Esri. Another hill I will die on. What is Esri? I, I know, but for the people listening. Uh, yes, ESRI. I don't know the acronym. They are the basically the one and only Earth Science G- Recording in- Industry or something like that. Yeah, environmental, environmental science, science recording industry or something like that. They are the the dominant program for basically all GIS. I mean, I don't want to say it's monopoly, but it's a fucking monopoly, like a hundred percent. 
they've kind of cornered this market and environmental systems research institute that's it okay okay yeah, yeah they've cornered the market on this uh if you do gis you usually use esri products like gis pro it's like adobe the, for gis yeah 100 yeah. and if you're in the field you use collector or field maps i mean i basically every company that runs it or runs some sort of esri product when doing recording monitoring i mean you used it for the monitoring project that, that you mentioned mm-hmm. so they they dominate the, the industry too. yeah yeah it's fun and you know as part of this project that you were working on i had like you i had to turn around these maps in like an instant so you had to dig that feature up in like 10 seconds mm-hmm. you know uh record everything etc i had to take that data later that day and get it back to create a map from it and send it off to um, the archaeologists at the, I think it was the BLM, within 24 hours, which is insane. Wow. So I was like on call. I know we were we were suffering together from afar, which was, yeah. it was nuts. But yeah, turning around that data into some, making a usable product within like 24 hours is insane. Especially when it's our demanding. report. Yeah. When we usually report stuff, you know, we're given two weeks, months to kind of get all this information together and, and put it out. So it's hard on the GIS people as well. Uh, I know the field folks take the brunt of it, but they're, I did slightly lose my sanity last summer because of this. Yeah. I, um, I could see it happening too. And I, like when I'm out there too, and like the little clunky iPads and stuff that I had, not to say Alpine stuff was clunky. It's just like, just technology. Y- yeah. You, right you're now. limited by the technology you have to like, it's not Star Wars. You can't pull up a hollow map of the site and point where the <laughs> things are. You have to like fill out little forms in a tablet, make it standardized so it's the same for every site. It's hell. <laughs> like there's a lot. And for people that want to go into CRM, like that's like it's like the tech is like it. We only it's not Star Wars. <laughs> like we can't like do everything with it. And it's not Tony Stark. So you're kind of limited by that. And like I imagine. The most efficient way to get everything written out would just be to take like a loose leaf piece of paper and, and write essays on the site. But like you can't do that. You got to make it quick. And No, and I, I know companies know. companies use forms where they type everything like on the you would on the loose leaf. But you have to use technology like you can't use loose leaf today in the CRM industry. Mm-mm. Especially out where it's so windy. <laughs> like you yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> oh, this one record of the site. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> so yeah. cute. Bye-bye. That's another thing too, working out there. It was like, there's BLM land in the middle of the Colorado, Utah border. It's so peaceful. Like it's just so empty. And like out East growing up, you can't see past the tree line. Like there's just trees everywhere. But like out there, I can see like, okay, well, here's where the, like the glacier melt is and here's the flood and like, here's the, you know, like where the continental shelf is. I can see the Rockies there is a fault line. Like you can literally see all that, maybe not all of that in the same view, but see all that and then like assess how the site works and like the deposition and things like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You could probably pick out where sites are going to be too. If you have enough experience, you're going to be like Definitely. on that, on that bench up there, um, overlooking the river, there's going to be probably some paleo Indian site, or there's going to be some sort of prehistoric stuff. I was going to say to Chris Rose, this is his point. Like a lot of times I'll be like, Oh, there's probably a site right there at that river. And then I'll look it up on the thing. It's the one spot of private land. I'm like the whole thing. It's like <laughs> so, somebody already bought it. Cause it's good land to have a site on. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I did miss, and being in Washington, you you obviously are constricted by forests, etc. But it, like you said, it really is like peaceful to be out here and kind of see very far and see landscapes. Like I had to, I had to drive to Warland, Wyoming, which is in, in Northwest BFE, bum fucking nowhere, um, Wyoming. But I drove across like a crazy landscape where I didn't BFE. see anyone. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, calming yeah. to me because like. Out east, you're taught like, you know, there's always going to be some creeper in the trees or coming out of the subway or coming out of like, like, don't go down that alley. There's like somebody, but out e- out west, it's like when you're not in a city and you're just out there, like you're the, you're the biggest, meanest thing that maybe there's a mountain lion, maybe there's a bear, but like, you can see if a person's coming, like maybe I'll eat my words and be like, Oh, someone's in the tree ready to shoot me. Like that's always going to be a thing. But like, 
Yeah. No, nah, you're you're like the you're the that apex out there, and like I'm really not scared of things out there. Like I'll think about skinwalkers or like Bigfoot sometimes, and get all like, oh no, like oh is it gonna get me? And then like you get like that psychosomatic, like your hair stands on end when you hear something, but that's just in your head. Um, yeah. But the rest of the time, like out in Wyoming, I could literally be out there in the middle of the night, wide open, and like the, like lay on on a sleeping bag without a tent. Sometimes, if it was nice enough out, and I'd feel safe. Like if I have my dog, I'm fine. Like yeah. it's cool. Or, or just stay in a random cave. I mean, the biggest thing you have to worry about is landowners, private landowners. It's like if you stay on public Shot. land, people, yeah, people leave you alone. I mean, that's that's what we pay for. That's we own it. Not as, my BLM. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. No, I'm excited to be back here. It's 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 beautiful. The archaeology is great. I don't. I I did notice like when you and I go to like historic tours and stuff like that. Like you you like you gravitate towards the maps. At our friend's house, our friend's family cabin, you like immediately went and looked at the topo topo maps that are upstairs. <laughs> like you were all about it. I just I, it's the way my brain works. I've been like this since I was a kid. I you know we would drive across Colorado and I'd have like the topo map out why don't you get a topo map on your other arm like of places you like like laramie and like your hometown is yeah i think like that'd be fucking cool like hypsography or even on my back it's all like lines yeah that's a good idea after i get my llama tattoo you getting a llama yeah it's gonna be like right under my eye Face face llama, llama tattoo <laughs> <laughs> makes me look hardcore. You ever put down a llama, boy? <laughs> you ever taken a llama into the mountains, boy? <laughs> they kick and scream <laughs> when you kill them. <laughs> Not the other. You ever, you ever seen a llama shit, boy? You told me about that. They shit in a circle. Are they just they just like they're just like so awkward. They get up like on all four legs, and they just look embarrassed as they just like. Stand. They're just like, yeah, don't look at me. It's because they know that we're judging them. Yeah, but they get they get the last laugh. Luckily, they don't kick. They just spit. It's true. Camels are weird. Camelids in general are just yeah that's, that's crazy. Yeah, weird. Well, adapted animals. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. Whatever happened in this last segment, I don't know. But yeah, I don't even know where I am. I think I know what happened. Jacob Arnzen, our previous guest, texted us about um, sailing, playing Sea of Thieves. If you guys haven't played <laughs> Sea of Thieves, you're missing out. <laughs> this podcast is currently sponsored by Sea of Thieves. <laughs> by A pirate's rarely. life for you. <laughs> it's fun. It's it's a game. It, it's pirate game. You can. You can sail the ocean. There's like treasure maps. There's ghosts and skeletons that attack you, and like, the, but the main threat is other pirates on the ocean that also want to hunt you and steal your treasure. So you have to, you have to work. You got to sail. You have to move the sails. You have to raise sails. You got to turn the sails. You got to have food. You got to have provisions. You got to have strategies and like. You got to play sharks instruments. Yeah, you can play instruments. You can get drunk. <laughs> it's a very fun game, uh, and it requires a lot of teamwork. So it's it's fun to play. Yeah. Shout out uh, remote, like distance video gaming in this generation. It's kind of nice. It's it's like the new way of socializing, at least for some some groups of people. I was trying to explain to some people a few weeks ago, like they were asking me like about like, do you go out and hang with friends? I'm like, when I'm in person, yeah. Like we're hang- we always go to the bar, we hang out, we're like together all the time. But when we're not in person, like, why would I go hang out with new make make new friends when I could just play video games with my other friends on the on the phone. Like, oh yeah, they're perfectly good friends. We're going to sell them. <laughs> like, like what? No, just, I can't see them, but you're seeing them in the game and you're interacting. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's the perfect way to keep distance. Like I still play with my, my homies from Washington. Shut up. Brendan and Steve, Steve, the pirate. Yarg. Yarg. <laughs> that was fun. It, it's a, it definitely in COVID it picked up for us. I think we started playing a lot more because you yeah. were in, well, you were both in Colorado then, yeah. Yeah, and I was in the middle of nowhere, so. But it's great. On that note, maybe we should make a MMORPG archaeology game that we could all play sometime, all of the listeners. But you know that'll never happen because it's just going to be grave robbing, <laughs> tomb raiding. 
Actually, just make a BLM archaeology monitoring simulator. You I mean, just they do farming simulator and, sh- and it, every time the bulldozer comes back, he goes, Bing! and you get a point. <laughs> and occasionally it keeps going and like it will compound like every day. Like, let's just say every hour of the game that you play, you get, let's say, 25 US dollars. And every eight hours, that's a whole day's work. And then you can take some of that money and like the government takes some of it and the state takes some of it. And then the your retirement some takes of some of it. The who? The booze. The, the booze takes some of it. That's just your per diem. And then like, as the game goes, like while you stand there, like, and like the, it like a little thing, like a little ghost bounces around your head. It's like, kill yourself. And you're like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And you're like, hit a quit, quit. And you're like, don't do it. And you just have to hit X. Like it's the boss battle every hour, you know? And like, as you play the game, the money that's just taken away kind of compounds in something called a 401k, but it's digital. And like, that's your life. And it's a yeah. video game. Well, and then if you find a feature, you have like a two minute time frame to like get it dug out. And it starts yes, getting like, playing like intense music. It's like boom, boom, boom. And at the end of every eight hour game session, you have to then write a perfectly worded reason why what you did that day was worthwhile and worth keeping and if one word or thing is wrong in that that six page paragraph you have to write uh the blm will say no sorry and like it's it's very hard yeah that sounds like something everyone's gonna listen to oh brother this guy stinks (laughs) (laughs) all right we'll see you guys next week Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Connor, do you uh, do you have a joke for us? <sighs> this one's going to be painful. The urge to sing A Lion Sleeps Tonight is always just a whim away. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland. DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.